Welcome to The Lead, the New Lions Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Otto Skorzeny was the Waffen-SS commando behind some of Nazi Germany's most significant special operations. When Mussolini's government fell, it was Skorzeny's team who were parachuted into Italy to rescue the dictator. At the end of the war, he was detained by Allied forces and awaited a denazification trial. But Skorzeny's story didn't end there. He escaped prison and fled to Franco's Spain before continuing his career in the shadowy world of Cold War intelligence. He became a military advisor to the Spanish, Egyptian and Argentinian governments and spent time as a bodyguard for Argentina's first lady, Eva Perón. He worked for a variety of intelligence agencies, directly and indirectly, the CIA, West German intelligence and Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad. He died in Madrid in 1975 at the age of 67. I'm joined today by Danny Orbach, a historian at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His book, Fugitives, A History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War, tells the story of Skorzeny and the many men like him, men who escaped post-war justice and went on to build careers in Cold War intelligence as influence peddlers, as spies, and as guns for hire. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for hosting me. I started with Sorzgeni because I think he's probably the most prominent of these Nazi mercenaries, and he's a good example of the sort of people you talk about in the book. But what surprised me reading it is just how many of them there were. It wasn't just one or two of these people, was it? You know, when a regime crumbles, especially a regime like the Nazi regime, where the huge spying and special operations and more generally war machine... You know, the regime crumbles, the government disappears, some people died, even many people die, but mm. many stay, many remain. Yeah. So, many of it, so, you know, one can ask, what did they do post-war? So, many of his people integrated in the post-Nazi states, mm. either in Eastern Germany or Western Germany, but a small minority of intelligence hands just didn't want to leave their job. They liked their job too much. (laughs) As a CIA official wrote after the war, all the intelligence hands are always attracted back to the job they know best. Mm. So they try to find employment with several secret services after the war Mm. or working as mercenaries, arms merchants, and other kind of free actors or free agents between the different powers, either uh, in Europe uh, or in South America or in the Middle East. Mm. And that's what I work on in my book with a special focus uh, on the Middle East, because many others covered South America. I cover Europe and the Middle East mainly. Yeah. And how did these people establish themselves? I mean, how does somebody go from a wanted war criminal on the run to Eva Peron's bodyguard? You know, about Eva Peron, I know less because I don't deal with South America. I don't speak Spanish. But Mm. I think it's quite clear, I'll say generally, the South American states were developing states. They wanted to develop quickly. And when you want to develop quickly, you need advisors, you need experts. Mm. But you don't have a lot of money to pay. So if you cannot take the top-notch experts of the world, so it's very tempting to to take experts from country that was very scientific, very advanced like Germany, but it lost the war. 
So mm-hmm. there are many people who are desperately looking for jobs so they can work for you on the cheap. That was the reason why countries like Argentina, but also in the Middle East, like Egypt and Syria, hired German advisors because it was a rare opportunity to get people who were in another situation, very expensive experts, to take them on the cheap because their Mm. country was just destroyed. Right. And of course, a lot of these people were were terrified that they would be put on trial and go to jail and maybe hanged. Of course. But, you know, this fear was uh, mostly unjustified. Mm. Because, you know, the people who were executed in Nuremberg were a handful of people from the Nazi government or people of very high positions and high responsibility. But the vast majority of Nazi criminals either got off with meager punishments or just escaped completely unharmed. And some of them, I mean, you were saying some of them got reintegrated into the subsequent German intelligence Very, very, very quickly. Mm. Um, you know, I, I once read uh, on a, the horror of a Polish tourist who just visited a German town for vacation. Yeah. Very quiet, very nice German town, uh, seaside, you know, the kind of place you spend your days off. Mm. And saw a small monument to the wonderful mayor of the town who, you know, built gardens and restored the old town and this and this and that. And then he recognized the name. That was the SS Butcher who murdered tens of thousands in Warsaw in 1944. Wow. And after the war, he just became, you know, this nice mayor who is remembered for restoring the old town. In some provincial, and not even in a different country, in a provincial town of the same country. Yeah, exactly. In Germany. Amazing. Um, a big part of what we're talking about is the Galen organization. And so to simplify it, uh, Reinhard Galen was a former Wehrmacht general who worked with the CIA to recruit a number of XSS and Gestapo figures for the new German intelligence organization. That organization would then go on to become West Germany's Federal Intelligence Service. So this man, Reinhard Galen, played a major role in bringing many of these fugitive Nazis into the intelligence world. I think I'd like to say a few words about Reinhard Gehren, because that's a a perfect example of a man who was never too talented, was rather a mediocre intelligence officer, who was an amazing politician. He was always able to place himself at the right place to get the most lucrative jobs and to get rid of competitors. And he was very quick to foresee them. So before the war had ended, this Reinhard Gehlen understood something very, very basic. You know, the, the Nazi leaders lived in the illusion that in 1945, the Soviet Union and the United States will start to fight with one another and Nazi Germany will be saved. That was a pipe dream because if it was something that the Soviet Union and the United States fully agreed about, is that Nazi Germany should be smashed. Mm. Uh, after Nazi Germany was smashed, though, Galen understood that they will start to squabble with one another. And what he also understood is that the United States did not have any intelligence of the Soviet Union. And no matter if it will be a cold war or hot war or just even a conflict between two superpowers, you need intelligence of the Soviet Union, no matter what. So what he did was taking his treasure of intelligence 
and bury it in the ground, somewhere in the Bavarian Alps, giving it to the Americans, not really, there was not really a deal with the Americans. He was a prisoner of war, he had to give them what they wanted. But he gave them the material and made himself, let's say, a very convenient mercenary to hire. He was the Soviet expert of the Americans after the war. And he was able to get rid of competitors in such a way that even though he was mediocre, he was the only guy around. Mm. And in the end, the Americans knew he didn't do a good job. He was not a great intelligence officer. But they said, we invested so much money in this guy and he's going to be the intelligence chief of West Germany. And, you know, we need an intelligence chief of a friendly country, but this guy is around, so let's continue with him, you know. Amazing. I mean, this sort of double dealing and backstabbing and all of this is par for the course. This is what that world was like. Exactly. And it was the world with, it was a very interesting world, like full of intrigues and uh, it was even in the realm of black humor. Let me tell you something about it. You know, yeah. much of the salary that America, the, the occupying powers in Germany, they paid their agents was in cigarettes, mm. coffee and cigarettes, because that was easy to sell in the black market, even if you didn't mm. smoke. Right. And almost everybody smoked at the time. Yeah. So. Uh, Germans who were keen could know whom their friends spy for, judging by the brand of cigarettes they smoke. <laughs> if it was like American, French, British, or Soviet cigarettes. I love these sorts of um, pieces of, of color um, because it really shows you that humans are the same everywhere. And I've no doubt there were people who tried to give the impression that they were spying for one side or the other by using particular brands of cigarettes, you know, as a kind of status symbol. Of course. This world, I mean, you spent a lot of a lot of your academic time, life, uh, writing about this world. And it isn't an easy one to write about because it's so secretive by nature. I wanted to ask you a bit about why you embarked on a project like that. I mean, it wasn't it's not the kind of thing that's easy to get into because a lot of the information is tucked away in classified archives. You know, first of all, many scholars in the in academia think that boredom is a status symbol. I'm not okay. one of them. You know, I had a colleague once who changed her subject because she thought her subject is too interesting, too populistic, and she wanted to be a serious intellectual. So I was never like that. Okay. Uh, I like subjects which are appealing to the public as well because they are more interesting for me as well. I love stories. That's mm. why I'm in this profession. Uh, and to tell you something about, yeah, this is a very tricky subject because archives are usually closed. Uh, I was benefited uh, by a law that passed during the Clinton administration that virtually forced the CIA to open millions of documents. Hmm. Almost everything that had to do with cooperation with Germans who might have been Nazis after 1945, or, or Japanese, by the way. Uh, and, of course, the CIA didn't expose everything. My match was blackened. But the things that were exposed were released on an internet site called Crest, which is still a treasure. It has millions and millions of CIA documents. So what happened is a chain reaction. The BND, German Secret Service, formerly the Galen organization, 
came to the CAA and said, what about us? You are going to expose the information about us as well? And the CIA said, you know, we are forced to do it by law, but we'll try to do it as late as we can. So you'll have, you, the Germans, will yeah. have the opportunity to expose the information yourselves. And the BND in recent years started this program of releasing documents and the internal German Secret Service, the Office for Constitutional Protection, did it as well. If France is almost completely closed. Uh, in the of subjects I wanted. Mm. Sounds like that it's going to open. The French Secret Service, the DGSE, is going to open soon, but it didn't happen yet. Of course, everything that has to do with Russia is completely closed. We have to rely on defectors, uh, most important of which is Vasily Mitrokhin, who brought a lot of documents to the United Kingdom. Arab, uh, Arab archives are completely absolutely and strictly closed. And here you don't have many defectors that can give you documents as well. Mm. And Israeli documents, that was very interesting. Israeli documents were completely closed until very recently. So according to Israeli law, the Shin Bet and the Mossad, which are the two secret services, as well as the Committee for Nuclear Research and several similar bodies, yeah. need to expose their documents or only after 90 years and not 50. So right. everything is still closed. And what I did is I tried to use all sorts of connections and nothing worked. And then I did it the most boring, bureaucratic, official way. I sent a letter to the Prime Minister's public relations spokesman. And I explained why I want the documents. Because it's Israel, I had to make sure that I'm not in a kind of an anti-Israeli quest. We are very afraid of that. Mm. Uh, uh, that I'm neutral, that I'm a serious scholar. Uh, and they said, we will think about it. Okay. <laughs> one, and a, one, a, one year and a half passes. And then my wife calls me from downstairs. I live in Jerusalem. And he said, we have a weird envelope from the prime minister's office stuck in our mailbox, almost falling down to the cats below. They just sent it to me by snail mail. <laughs> and you wrote, you mentioned this actually in the, in the essay you wrote for us, that that was, that was the first time that you, you found this piece of information, the folder, and it had the motto of the Mossad on it, and yeah, just exactly. it was like a normal envelope. Yeah, it was weird. Actually, what the key document they sent me, and I used it extensively, is an in-house historical research. Uh, the Mossad, like similar organizations, has its own historians. By the way, they are very good. They mm. are often, they are not professional historians. They are often pensioners of the organization. People who worked in the organization, no sort of jobs, and now they are retired. And they volunteer usually and work on these histories. And the history of this internal history of the Mossad was so useful, not only because it relied on many documents that they are closed in their archives, and sometimes you have a facsimile copy of Mossad documents. It's like a treasure. Mm. And also, uh, 
you, it's very critical in a way you wouldn't imagine on an in-house study. In one of the, in their conclusion, for example, they write on the Mossad campaign against the German scientists in Egypt. We were very sorry to find out that everything the Mossad did in this campaign had no purpose and sense. We did nothing to solve the problem. Instead, it died out by itself. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Surprisingly, that's... yeah. Surprisingly critical for, an, for a government uh, organization. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I found it so useful. Uh, so, yeah, that's why. And what I really want to do if I write, let's say, a sequel sometimes, Alois Brunner, who was in Syria, it seems, was covered extensively in Polish documents. Yeah. Poland was communist at the time. I don't know Polish, but I have a colleague who does. And we may do something about it. And of course, if France will open their documents, that would be amazing. And what I really hope that maybe Bashar al-Assad will be overthrown one day in Syria and the archives will open and that will be amazing. Mm. There's a, that meaning that there, there's a lot more to the story. Than, a lot more, a yeah. lot more to find out. Let's go back a little bit um, to just the post-war period because I wanted to, to, to ask you why... What, what I think is the question at the, really at the heart of the story, which is why did so many of these intelligence agencies want to work with the Nazis? Um, and I just, because some of the, some of these people, of course, were the worst of the worst. You, you've just talked about Alois Brenner, but in the book, you mentioned Klaus Barbie, who'd been a Gestapo chief in, in France, and he was responsible for torturing, killing tens of thousands, some personally. Um, US intelligence employed him as a spy. They helped him escape to Bolivia. And there he advised the regime on how to crush partisans. There is a very funny anecdote about it, which I didn't tell in the book, so I'll tell it to your listeners in mm -hmm. the first time, about Klaus Barbie. In fact, the CIC that employed him, it was not the CIA, it was a different American intelligence agency, a counterintelligence corps, it belonged to the army. It was also the agency which was responsible to hunt Nazi criminals. That was the agency that employed Klaus Barbie. At some point, they got an order not to employ him any longer because he was wanted by the French, and the French protested. What the CIC did was a bureaucratic miracle. So they notified their superiors that they would fire Klaus Barbie effective today, but he shouldn't know that he was fired, right? Maybe we run away. Right. So they will continue giving him uh, assignments and money and getting information from him so you wouldn't know that he's fired. <laughs> so, so it's the only case I ever found in the history of a labor market that an employee was employed so that he wouldn't know that he's actually fired. <laughs> I mean, some of this, you know, this is very funny, but it's also black humor. Yeah, completely. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, at the... the Intelligence work, especially in a period that was so tense like that, was always going to involve these moral compromises. But it is quite a heavy compromise for these agencies to be actively aiding and abetting war criminals. So you see, that is one of the things I saw in the book and one of my insights. Hmm. It's good and it's bad at the same time. People are very, very quick about forgetting past hatreds 
when a new enemy comes on the agenda. So imagine yourself as a CIA officer, and let's say that you are a reasonably moral person, but you are also practical. Mm-hmm. You have an enemy, the Soviet Union. Nobody at the time knew that there would not be a third world war. Many people expected a third world war. For a war, you need intelligence. Would you allow yourself to endanger U.S. troops and not collecting the intelligence you need because your agent did terrible things in the past? What's mm-hmm. more important, the past yeah. or the future? Yeah. That yeah. was how these people thought. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and by the way, the people who condemn them, the condemnation usually comes after there is no longer practical need in employing them. Right. Right. I mean, this is perhaps, this is one of the things that I find very discomforting about it. As you say, everybody was at it. The yeah. the Americans were at it, the Syrians were at it, the Soviets were at it, the Egyptians were at it, the French, the Israelis, the West Germans, everybody was at it. It was like a mad scramble for these uh, ex, ex-Nazi officers. Yes, but I think it was also an illusion. People imagined that they were much better than they actually were. Hmm. Because Nazi Germany had this grandiose image of a superpower. Uh, yes, they were defeated, but it was like, you know, a giant defeated. Mm. And they were right. not that good. Many of them were quite mediocre. But the word Nazi carried such an immense emotional baggage at the time. Mm. For the word German, that people imagined them as more powerful than they actually were. But, you know, people learn. People learn gradually, but they learn. And that's why after the mid-60s, they were employed by nobody. So they kind of faded away. And even in some cases, I mean, I think working with these fugitives wasn't just a bad idea. It actually turned out to be a liability in some cases. Because these people were liable to work for the Soviet Union, in the end, mm. they were attracted to the Soviet, not all of them, but many. Why? Because the Soviet Union was much better at recruiting agents than most other countries. They were just more professional. And as a totalitarian country, we had more means at their disposal and less regulation that limited them. Uh, also, it was comfortable to work for a dictatorship if we are used to do it. The Soviet recruiters let these Nazis believe, falsely, but they let them believe that we are manipulating superpowers to their advantage. And this tempted many of them. I'd like to say, as a aside, that many agents work for intelligence agencies not because of the money. They work because of the thrill and the adventure. And when you give the illusion to somebody that he's way more important than he actually is, you know, that he's manipulating superpowers against each other, mm-hmm. it's very tempting. I would say an aside to our listeners who are Middle Eastern savvy, that Ashraf Marwan, the famous Egyptian agent who worked for Israel in the early 70s. He was President Nasser's, he was the husband of Nasser's daughter, Nasser's son-in-law. He worked for a very similar reason. He enjoyed 
manipulating both Israel and Egypt, being a kind of a super agent that plays in world politics. Mm. So this is a very tempting illusion in the intelligence world, and many former Nazis were tempted by it. The issue was that these former Nazis were tied to one another in very dense networks of friendship and camaraderie. So even if only some of them worked for the Soviet Union, others gave them information. It was like a virus in a, com- in a computer network. And it completely destroyed the West German Secret Service. Because a few of them were enough to spoil hundreds of operations behind the Iron Curtain. Mm, right, right, right. Because they had these networks which they established beforehand and they just took with them into their new roles. Completely. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about the Israeli involvement, and because this is part of the essay that you wrote for us. So the Mossad recruited two unrepentant Nazis, Skortzeni, who we've talked about already, and through him, Hermann Valentin, a former SS sergeant. Valentin was working as a security officer for a group of ex-Nazi scientists who were working on Egypt's missile program, which the Mossad was trying to spy on. And I want to talk about it because it gives you an indication of the background to the beginning of Israel working with these people. You write in the essay, um, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, Israel's arch enemy, had developed long-range rockets. And when this became known in July 1962, Nasser boasted that these new rockets could hit any point south of Beirut, in other words, any point in Israel. And you write, the government in Israel reacted with panic. The Mossad interpreted the presence of the German scientists as a Nazi ploy to destroy the Jewish state. And I want to quote one more part because I think it gives an indication of the thinking inside Israel in the 1960s. So you write that David Ben-Gurion, who was then Israel's prime minister, was tormented by sleepless nights and began to wonder whether his Zionist movement had brought the Jews to Palestine only to lead them to a second Holocaust. Had the Jews, you write, he thought, been saved from the Nazis only to be slaughtered by Egypt's armies. It was as if the sky were falling on our heads, said the Director General of the Defense Ministry. That was the background to the decision. And I think, it, it, as you say, people forget over time what was going on and what people thought. Just exactly as you say, there was a perception that Nazi Germany had been this technological superpower. The same, the same understandings were also filtering through to other countries. They thought another war is coming. They, David Ben-Gurion had this fear about what might happen to the Jews now they had arrived. Those sorts of things. See, not everybody in Israel was completely panicked. For example, military intelligence was mostly cool towards the Egyptian program. And everybody who looked really calmly on the evidence saw that the Egyptians will have a lot of trouble to develop really accurate rockets. One of the reasons the Egyptians didn't have enough local expertise, of course, they could hire German experts, but these were not the best experts. The best experts worked for the Soviet Union or the United States. Mm. Uh, these were third-grade experts. In the Mossad documents, they say, we shouldn't have called them scientists from the beginning. We should have called them the German technicians, which they were actually were. They were technicians. And, you know, it sounds less frightening. The crisis of the German <laughs> technicians, right? <laughs> like the crisis of the German scientists. Right. But politics doesn't work like that. And Israel was so traumatized by the Holocaust that they completely blew up 
the danger. And they were also influenced by the, the, the Egyptian documents. So the Mossad was a, a very capable intelligence organization. We were able to steal many of his documents of the German scientists in Egypt and several Egyptian documents. And the Egyptians, and you know, as often happens in Egypt, over widely exaggerated about the potential of the project. And the Israelis kind of bought these Egyptian exaggerations. So Israel was frightened and they started this campaign against the German scientists in Egypt. Mm. But, but it can't, yeah, carry on. But as this campaign went on and on and on and on, the most, especially when the Mossad changed leadership from Israel to Meir Amit, the Mossad itself discovered that the project was not functional. And now we wanted to kick the German scientists out of Egypt, mainly to solve the political crisis. Mm. So we didn't really feel a mortal danger. I'll say one more word. Mm. One of the problems of Egypt with the program and see how people don't think about it in real time. It's a geographical problem. It has to do with the geography of Egypt. When you develop rockets, you need a very, very clean environment. Super clean. And Egypt couldn't find a place in the desert which wouldn't be swept up by sand. You just couldn't. Mm. And it was enough to have a tiny bit of, of sand to destroy an entire engine. Right. So people usually don't think about these things, but they are crucial. It, it can't have been a straightforward relationship, though, um, between the Mossad and Forrest Gordzeni. I wonder if you can talk a bit about how they, they tried to navigate that. So the Gordzeni affair began in 1964. The Mossad was in a deadlock. We understood at 1964, under the much cooler leadership of Meir Amit, that the rockets were no mortal danger to Israel, and yet we wanted to finish the affair, to kick the German scientists out of Egypt somehow, but we couldn't. The attempts to campaign and to make the German government to force them somehow to leave failed. There were many constitutional and legal problems in Germany about it. And the attempt to terrorize them failed as well. They stayed in Egypt, they remained in Egypt, were very defiant. They would say, they said that we will not surrender to Israeli terrorism and we just stay in Egypt no matter what. And also the Mossad couldn't recruit new sources of information about the project because this uh, Herman Valentin was a former SS sergeant, was a very capable security officer. And then the Mossad thought we should neutralize Herman Valentin somehow. But he was very careful. It was very hard to reach him. And they thought, why wouldn't we recruit him, recruit Herman Valentin? But how? Then you do what in intelligence law is called finding an agent of influence or an agent of approach. You find somebody who is close enough to your target and can exert influence on your target. So somebody in the Mossad, it was the legendary spy Rafi Eitan actually, discovered that Valentin's commander in the war was Otto Skorzeny. 
and usually wartime bonds are very strong. And Rafi Eitan said, why won't we recruit Otto Skorzeny? So he can influence Herman Valentin. That was the idea. There were fierce debates about it in the Mossad. Virtually everybody was a Holocaust survivor, fiercely opposed the idea. Those who were born in Israel, like Rafi Eitan, did not. And the prime minister decided to go for it. And then they had to access Korteni somehow. And they did it through his wife. His wife, Countless Countess Ilse von Finkelstein, had an open relationship with him. So she had a relationship with many men, usually very rich or very handsome in many, many different locations around the world. So mm-hmm. intelligence organizations love these things. So the Mossad was able to recruit a German native speaker, an Israeli German native speaker, who was, and I quote from the Mossad documents, it's half black humor, half cruelty. He was very good at exerting influence on women on a certain, in a certain <laughs> age. Yeah, you have this in the quote in our essay, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the kind of thing you want to, want to hear, actually. And by the way, he was asked later if he had intimate relationship with the countess and he said he, he answered gentlemen don't speak about what they did at night <laughs> <laughs> um, i want to talk i want to broaden it out a little bit i mean you, you do seem very intrigued you do seem to like these stories and i think that's what makes the writing um really interesting that you do seem to be um attracted to some of these stories not just about the colorfulness of the intelligence community but also the, what you mentioned before the hubris and the self-delusion of a lot of these spies um, but you seem to envisage it as a kind of cautionary tale, the way that a lot of these spies were deluded into thinking that they had a greater influence than they did. I think it's part of the game, and it's it's a structural issue. It's written even, you know, in the Mossad study that I mentioned, they write it very candidly. Hmm. So they ask themselves, why didn't we get it on time? Why didn't we understand that the Egyptian-German project was worthless? Uh, for example, some people in Israel is, uh, uh, had a suspicion that the Egyptians are developing a nuclear program. You see how it is difficult for the Iranians today now, right? The mm. Egyptians in the 1960s could not have developed a nuclear program in any way, and Israeli scientists knew it very well. But then I quote again from the Mossad study, spies always believe in conspiracies. Yeah, and they, they deal tend, in conspiracies. Yeah, and so you tend to believe that if you are cunning enough, if you are daring enough, then you can solve any technical problem. Mm-hmm. Then you can overcome structural issues. You wouldn't think that, you know, the Mossad, they, they appreciated the Egyptian enemies. They appreciated the Egyptian Secret Service way too much. They kind of have a level of, I mean, I suppose because they're both working on the same topics, they have a level of, kind of professional respect and they think they can overcome these issues. I think that spies overemphasize the u- human agency. Mm. The ability of human beings to overcome problems through cunning. 
that must have been something that when you're writing the book must have been very challenging because you're you're trying to sort through these constantly shifting priorities and then at the same time you're trying to like pass the inter-service rivalries about who's manipulating whom how did you find just right just the, the act of writing and research i mean of trying to find the truth in a world of what is a world of lies and delusions anyway you know, when you are writing such books, and I'll give an advice to future authors maybe, you need to overcome your suspicions, but to remember them at the same time. You hear something, mm-hmm. you suspect it may be a lie, but if you'll, if you'll take this way of thinking, you'll write nothing. I just write it, I begin to write my chapter, Of course, I write the source in the footnotes as if it was true. But then I retain the suspicion and I mentally prepared to delete any sentence anytime when I discover that it's uncorroborated or that I have a justified suspicion that it may be false. So I'm kind of writing a narrative but I'm assuming at the same time that this narrative can be partially false. And I'm ready to change my narrative anytime. And it's not easy to do it emotionally when you write a book. In a way, that's actually the same process that a lot of these spies went through, that they believed something was happening, they were looking for pieces of evidence, but they had to be willing to change it. Yeah, but and not all of them were. That was, that's part of the problem, that sometimes it went a little bit too far, as you were saying earlier, because of politics, because of professional respect, things like that. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the the overall picture of what came out of these Nazi mercenaries, because you conclude that the Nazi mercenaries didn't actually matter all that much. This is, I'm quoting here from your book, that like ghosts in the mirror, they faded into oblivion the moment mesmerized viewers turned their attention elsewhere. But I wonder, is that really what happened? Because I understand your point that they weren't nearly as significant as intelligence services assumed. Certainly they weren't as significant as they themselves like to believe they were. But it is significant that Germany's federal intelligence service began life as Reinhard Galen's circle of Gestapo. That does make a difference. These are, these are lasting influences that we're still dealing with to this day. But the way the Gehren organization was structured had to do with these illusions in the first place. In this case, the American illusions, illusion that Nazi experts are worth way more than they were actually worth. So my main insight from the book is that, yeah, these Nazi veterans didn't matter even of themselves. What did matter was the overreaction of secret services and governments to their presence. And the overreaction of governments changed a lot. The U.S. government by hiring Gehlen and establishing the German secret service in such a way based on former Nazi intelligence officers. Uh, The French by starting to assassinate German arms merchants in a way that brought the Soviets and the Chinese to the Algerian war. That's another issue that I cover in the book. The Israel, by interfering in a worthless project and creating a political crisis with Germany that was completely unneeded. And here we have to note that Mayor Amit, the the second head of the Mossad that I cover, knew how to 
uh, extract honey out of his crisis. He knew how to turn this crisis into an opportunity for Israel. But that was somebody who is very wise, who is trying to fix the damage that his predecessor did. Uh, so the illusions and the overreaction of governments to the presence of these Nazis had a very, very strong uh, or very, very consequential outcome. And I think that the emotional baggage that the word Nazi carried after the war had a lot to do with it. You could, of course, after the war, there were neo-Nazis who supported. For them, the word Nazi was something favorable. Most of the world saw it as something detestable, but virtually nobody saw it as something unimportant. Mm, right. When you were going through the book and you, you were finding out about these characters, did it bother you that so many of these men escaped justice? I mean, even if they didn't end up mattering very much, they were still able to use their intelligence connections to avoid having to answer for their, the Second World War crimes. In the you know, I started, of course, to read about it many, many years ago, and I was bothered then, and I'm bothered now. Uh, now, but I'm, I'm more, let's say, disillusioned than I was. I think that the nature of the world is that hatred and fury are mitigating very quickly when a new enemy comes on the scene. Mm. And so... I think what the Allies, I think that the, the idea that was very popular in 45 and 46, that we will chase all of these Nazis and punish all of them, that was wrong. Because the, while there was still rage, while the war was still remembered, the Allies wasted their time by, you know, hunting all sorts of small price. I think that if you really want to punish war criminals, as you know in the Second World War, choose the people who were the worst and focus on them. Retrospectively, I would have been much happier if the Nazi government plus, you know, the killing units in Russia and the people who operated the gas chambers, concentration camps guards, if all of these people were executed, I would have been happy to pardon all other Germans. Mm. Though so many people were involved, and we know this today, but, you know, if you try to catch too many, you catch none. Lastly, I wanted to talk about some of the challenges involved in a piece of research in a book like this, which, of course, relies heavily on classified sources. And we talked a little bit about this um, before because some of these sources are not able, you're not able to access them. So I wanted to finish off by asking you how complete you think the story that you're telling really is. I mean, how much of the story remains hidden away? You've talked about there being potentially a sequel, but is there anything major you think might be missing from that story? What we miss most is Soviet archives, Syrian archives, and to a lesser extent, French archives. First of all, the, you know that the personal archive of Alois Brunner is still in Damascus and it's in the presidential palace. Uh, if it will be ever be exposed, we may know what Alois Brunner did in Syria and how he influenced modern Syrian history. So many Syrians, especially from the opposition, believe that he developed many of the terror techniques used by the Assad regime. I think it's exaggerated. 
but we wouldn't know for sure until we access Syrian archives. Soviet archives, we could know how they recruited these Nazis and how they penetrated the Western intelligence community in the early Cold War. And French archives may tell us much more about the role of these former Nazis in the Algerian uh, war. And I think in Israeli archives also there are many things which we can still find. This is an unfinished story. This is very much a story in progress. Now new books are being published in German based on BND files. You know, the German scholars who had more access to Secret Service documents than I had. And they teach me a lot of new things. They correct mistakes. So the story still goes on. Danny Orbach, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Faisal. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Danny on Twitter at Mujakara and buy his book, Fugitives, A History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War, at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafan. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>